Families are always interesting, really. Even normal ones have their own personalities, their own quirks, and their own stories. Today's family is normal, too, at least if you ask the children about their lives and how they grew up. Kids are pretty good at adapting to new normals, and in this case, there are a lot of kids to ask. So in a large house, in a very nice area of Toronto, through the 1970s and 80s, there lived a nice, normal family. Mom, dad, kids. About 30 kids, actually. 30 kids, most of them adopted from all over the world. 30 or so, nobody's quite sure. Dozens of kids with different languages, different needs, different dreams, different personalities. There was a breakfast shift and a dinner shift. There were enough groceries to literally feed an army. There were guests sometimes at the dinner table that Dad simply assumed were his new children. And there were neighbors who didn't know what to expect when a family full of kids from around the world of different colors arrived on their wealthy street. And they definitely weren't sure how to react when new kids just kept arriving one after the other, sometimes a new one every couple of months. So, okay, maybe this wasn't normal, except to the family itself. But it was a glimpse into the Canada that we'd become and the lives of those 30 or so kids. Can today each tell their own stories too? So, meet the Simpsons. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and this is A Big Story. Nicholas Hune Brown is a writer, and he looked into this remarkable family for Toronto life. Hello, Nicholas. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I'm glad, um, I'm glad we're talking about such a nice story today. Yeah, it was a pleasure to report this story in the middle of a, you know, a not nice time. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell me uh, briefly, because we're going to get obviously into some detail about them, but uh, just who are uh, the Simpson family? Yeah, the, the Simpsons may have been Canada's biggest family in the 70s, but none of the, none of the family members actually bothered to keep track of their specific numbers. But they were, um, they were 30-odd kids uh, adopted from around the world, uh, living together in a, a giant mansion in Forest Hill from, yeah, from the mid-70s to the 80s. I really enjoy the fact that you can just say they had 30-odd kids. It seems unbelievable to me that you wouldn't keep track, but I guess after a certain point, it just, you know, what's one more? How did you hear about this family? Yeah, I heard about them actually through my editor at Toronto Life, Emily Landau, and she she'd been speaking with Sash Simpson, who's a, a, a sort of chef here in Toronto. He was the head chef at North 44 for years, uh, and he has his own restaurant now called Sash, which is this, like, very plush dining room where you go in and the waiters sort of wordlessly fill your water glasses. Um, and he was telling her that he had grown up in this in this sort of crazy situation. He'd gone from a street kid in India to an orphanage to finding himself in the middle of a crazy family with kids from everywhere uh, in the heart of one of, one of Toronto's richest neighborhoods. So uh, when she brought me that story, that kind of nugget of, of what was going on, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Well, why don't you kind of start... Uh, right from the beginning. So uh, the Simpsons are, are Sandra and her husband Lloyd. And how did they start down this path that led to 30-odd children? Yeah, well, Sandra always says that no one 
no one begins with the idea of adopting 30 kids, right? It's something that just sort of happens. Um, and But their story definitely begins with her, with, with Sandra Simpson, who today is an 83-year-old. She lives in, in Point Claire, Quebec. When I first heard, you know, the outlines of the story, you kind of picture this saintly, motherly type. And Sandra is not that, you know, she's she's sharp. She's a little bit prickly. Um, when I first got in touch with her, she emailed me immediately back and said, I did my last interview years ago. I don't want to speak to anyone again. So she's kind of an interesting, an interesting figure. Um, she was born in 1937 in Columbia, actually. By the, by the 50s and 60s, she was married to Lloyd. Um, she was a housewife in an Anglophone suburb of Montreal, and she wanted to adopt kids. She wanted to help. She was um, someone who kind of felt that it was her, her duty as a sort of comfortable woman living in a, a nice house to kind of do what she could to, to help children where she could. So she began by adopting four, four kids in, from Quebec who had been through various foster homes. Um, so they came first with Lloyd. And quickly after, she sort of began thinking about international adoption. And at that point, their, their international adoption didn't really exist in Canada. That's kind of, we take it for granted today, but it was a new concept then. People weren't bringing in kids from different races and different countries and making them legal guardians. It just, it just didn't happen. Um, but at that time, there was tons of news about, uh, about the Vietnam War, about these orphans being left behind. And Sandra just felt it was, it was crazy that she wasn't able to, to adopt one of these kids. So she started the long, uh, kind of difficult process of figuring out how to do that. What is that process? Well, I guess, uh, what did that process look like at the time as she was kind of making it up? Like, what, what hurdles did she have to get through? Yeah, she, I mean, she just called everyone she could. You know, she kind of looked at every authority she could think of. She <laughs> Simpler times. She phoned them up. She eventually phoned the prime minister's office. She's sort of, you know, one of these these women who who wouldn't take no for an answer, who was pushy, who who felt a sort of moral clarity. She felt that, you know, these kids were suffering and she could offer them a better home. So why... Why wasn't anyone helping her make this happen? Eventually, she sort of connected with another woman who kind of had a similar attitude, an Australian nurse in, in Vietnam, who was figuring out how to, to get some of these children out of the country. Um, and through her and through kind of just constantly badgering authorities, she, um, she adopted May in, uh, in 1969, the first, which was one of the first Vietnam orphans out of the country and, uh, and Sandra's first international adoption. What was that experience like? I mean, I don't know if she told you or if anybody's described it, but, um, you know, at a time when that wasn't happening. Yeah, I mean, Sandra's very no-nonsense about all this stuff. She says that these kids came and they were her kids. This was, uh, I think, May was, I think, one, something like that when she arrived. So she she has no memories of, of life in Vietnam. But things went smoothly. The The family had their own biological children. They eventually had four. And these adopted kids kind of, slotted in right right next to them. Uh, and the family grew really, really quickly after that that first child. How did that happen? Um, can you kind of describe just how quickly they grew, where these kids came from, um, what Sandra was doing to, to bring so many? Because I think we feel like adoption is a pretty lengthy and detailed process. But uh, by the way you've written the piece, it doesn't sound like she took it slow. No, not at all. I mean, because she was sort of inventing this along with actually two other mothers in, in the same suburb of, of Montreal who kind of had the same idea. So maybe there was something something going on in the water there. But she, they started an organization to kind of help other families go through this process called Families for Children. Um, and the aim at the beginning was to just kind of, she had figured out how to fight her way through all these various bureaucracies and she wanted to 
be able to, to, to do that for other families. So she ends up being the head of a kind of adoption agency. After Vietnam, she kind of just follows different conflicts around the world. You know, you see, you see war in Bangladesh and, and orphans being created there, and she sort of brings FFC there. Um, the war in Vietnam shifts to Cambodia. She brings FFC there, and she, at the same time, is, is uh, adopting kids from both these countries. So she's eventually the Simpson family ends up looking like this strange map of kind of uh, Cold War conflict with kids from all around the world, but mainly from places that, um, you know, where, you were, where orphans were being, were being made. Outside of her own family, what kind of uh, scale was FFC operating on? How big was this organization? There's still two orphanages that that are run by FFC, so it kind of grew pretty quickly. But I think at a certain point there were there were at least four, and they were one of the main organizations that were kind of facilitating uh, private adoption in Canada. So hundreds of kids that, that came here in the in the 70s would have gone through through Sandra's organization. So yeah, she she kind of. As a, a mother, as someone without a university education, who, who kind of had no, no foreign policy background, was suddenly in the middle of this kind of pretty large undertaking. I realize I had in my notes that I wanted to ask you that you may have already answered just because of the kind of person Sandra is. But like, where does that outlook come from and why was she so driven? Like, I can absolutely understand the feeling of, of we should help this child or help a child, but um, I can't comprehend uh, drive at that scale. Yeah, that, I mean, to be perfectly honest, that remains the kind of central mystery for me. Sandra refuses to acknowledge that what she did is anything other than what what any right-thinking moral person would do. I constantly would badger her. She, she lost her, her larynx uh, about 10 years ago, so we texted and, and emailed mostly. Um, and I would say, why did you adopt so many children when your neighbors didn't? And she would say, I have no idea. You can ask my neighbors. Hmm. She, she, you know, refuses to acknowledge that. But I think, and for her children as well, she remains a little bit of a mystery. Like her, her kids thinking about it today, now that they're parents, now that they're looking back on, on the decisions she made, they can't quite understand it except to think that she sort of had this, this moral vision. It seemed like the right thing to do. And she had this kind of, strange, stubborn, unrelenting personality that um, that just kind of kept kept going towards that. It, it, each each time that a kid would come up for adoption, the, the moral question seemed clear to her. Like there was there was a kid that, you know, might literally not survive if they weren't brought into a better situation. Um, she had a home and she could always put a little more pasta on the pot and, you know, make the, the hand-me-downs last a little longer. So each time it, it just seemed... Um, it seemed that the right thing to do was to adopt. Yeah, it's it's sort of kind of unimaginable to, to me, to be honest. That's one of the fascinating things about her, that whatever sort of philanthropy and, and good deeds most of us do, they're, they're usually at a distance. But she was very much like bringing these things that she saw um, overseas and bringing them right into her home. And I think that's what makes her so so unusual. Tell me about how they ended up in Forest Hill. By the mid-70s, there are 20 kids in this house in, in Point Claire. And <laughs> at the same time, the, the Quebec referendum is, is happening, right? So Anglophones like like Sandra and Lloyd um, are getting a bit anxious. Lloyd's in the construction business. There's not much construction going on. And most importantly, the new language laws mean that a lot of these kids who are just learning English, many of them have learning disabilities, they're going to be sort of bussed out to, to various French schools. So that's, that was kind of a conundrum for Sandra. She didn't quite know what to do. Uh, and at that point... This sort of extraordinary thing happens where um, a family called the Gundys, who are 
like you you could only call them Toronto aristocracy. They're, he was the head of the biggest uh, brokerage company in the country, Wood Gundy, um, the kind of very wealthy family that lived in Forest Hill and who had adopted through FFC uh, a number of kids. They They kind of learned more about the Simpsons, about this family who was taking care of so many kids with so much less than they had. And they made an incredible offer to basically move the whole family into this giant house on on uh, Russell Hill Road that they owned. I think they might have paid some rent, but it was very, you know, very favorable. Um, they could stay as long as they wanted. Uh, and Sandra mm. did not want to go anywhere, but she she was kind of a pragmatist. And yeah, she moved she moved the whole family to Toronto. So they arrived in 1978. What did the neighbors think? I mean, uh, a family of 20-something kids moves in next door. I mean, I think they were... I think they were alarmed. <laughs> like at that time, Forest Hill was uh, was a very white neighborhood. It was uh, a very rich neighborhood. These kids were from you know all around the world. Um, and at the beginning, I think kind of understandably, they thought that maybe Sandra was running some kind of illegal group home or was a foster. They were maybe profiting off these kids. Uh, so they were kind of ended up being in in sort of fights with city councilors at a certain point. There was a sort of low level racism that a lot of the kids described. Um, mm. The schools they went to were, you know, again, were very white schools. Other kids say that they fit in just perfectly. They kind of were able to move amongst these these people um, just fine. So every every kid has their own uh, their own experience. But um, but yeah, for Sandra, it definitely was not home. It was a place that, you know, she was suddenly surrounded by, yeah, in- incredibly wealthy people who weren't who weren't necessarily her tribe. And uh, and she felt a little uncomfortable. Did she work at, at changing that and trying to fit in or just kind of plant down and look after her crew? She she planted down mainly. I mean, she eventually you're, you reach 30 kids and she is running a giant organization. Right. She is taking care of these 30 kids. She did the best she could to stay out of their neighbor's way. She was very strict with her kids. She kind of ran a tight ship, which they all say you kind of had to with, at that scale. So they were, you know, they were not supposed to go on their neighbor's lawn. They were supposed to come right back to the, the backyard and, and play there. The idea of sort of a, a roving gang of, of 20 kids kind of taking over the neighborhood, she was, she was kind of worried about that. She was, yeah, she was trying to protect them. My next question is like just logistical. How do you do parenting at that scale? I only have one child and I'm already tired all the time. And you know, 30 kids plus uh, your own business that you run? Like, how do you feed them, clothe them, get them all off to school, teach them all how to do the things they need to do, potty train them all, et cetera, et cetera? I had a lot of questions about this as well. <laughs> and I think, so I'll, I'll tell you a typical a typical day for the family. It begins at 3.30 in the morning. Sandra wakes up because a lot of her charity work, her, her um, orphanages are overseas. She has to be awake when they're awake. So she's doing, um, she's sending off faxes. She's kind of answering questions from the orphanages. Eventually, the kids wake up. And once you join the family, each kid was assigned to either the breakfast crew or the dinner crew. So they half the kids would, would get to work and they would start making these giant breakfasts. None of them had ever had a toast from a toaster in, until they were like 18. You know, you'd just throw toast into the oven, <laughs> toast it on one side, make giant vats of, uh, of scrambled eggs. Then they would head off to various schools. There'd be a wheel trends for some of the kids who were disabled. Many of them, many of them were. Um, Sandra would be alone with uh, with the kids who are too young to do that and still working, you know, overseas, trying to talk to Canadian donors for her for her organization. And I think that one of the hardest things is just the the money itself, right? Like Lloyd was a construction estimator, which is a, a nice job, but it's not a job that feeds 30 people. Right. So they were constantly 
constantly scrambling. Like Sandra was baking nine loaves of bread at night. Like she sewed some of their own clothes. Twice a week, they take these giant trips to Nob Hill Farms with the kids and like fill three supermarket oh uh, carts with, with kind of discount cereals and powdered milk and, and all that stuff. Um, they, you kind of ran it like a, like a little army. Kids weren't allowed to go in the fridge between meals because, you know, 30 kind of snackers could just decimate what you had there. Like locusts. <laughs> yeah, no, really. So they, so they, you know, they ran things pretty strictly. A lot of the kids, when they came, were a little bit older. That was one of the... Uh, those were some of the kids. She wanted to adopt kids who had little chance of, of being adopted elsewhere. So they kind of slid in and and helped out. Um, older kids looked after younger kids. I think at a certain scale, it kind of begins to it begins to run itself more, I assume, I'd hope. Um, you would hope, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was easy, though. <laughs> what did um, Lloyd think of this? We've talked all about Sandra so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that kind of is is how it goes when you talk to the Simpson kids. He's Sandra's very much the driver of all of this, and Lloyd. Everyone describes him as very relaxed, very happy to to kind sort of follow Sandra's lead. Um, very supportive. He would go off to work in the morning. He would come back home. Some of his kids would kind of find him at the end of the of the of the block and sort of spend a few minutes walking with him, so they'd get a little bit of alone time with their dad. And he loved his wife. He loved this crazy life that they made. And he kind of was happy to, to support them. Whenever the kids talk about Sandra would go overseas to, you know, to take care of, of what was going on at one of the orphanages. And they, they would be left with Lloyd, who inevitably was like not the disciplinarian, would kind of let things run a bit wild. He was, every kid describes him as, as kind, supportive, and, and just kind of along for the ride. Um, he also, he would kind of, because kids were coming in so frequently, like they they adopted dozens of kids, but but often more kids were just coming through, like kids who were between adoptions, kids um, when sort of Vietnamese boat refugees arrived, a bunch of them stayed with the family for a few months. When kids from El Salvador were looking for a place, they would stay. So there were always kids moving through. Um, and at a certain point, Lloyd, Lloyd's sort of strategy was if he saw a new face at the dinner table was like not to introduce himself immediately, but just wait a little while. And if, and if that kid was still there a week later, then... You know, maybe maybe he had a new son or daughter. <laughs> he was very relaxed about everything. Is the is the sense that I get? I think you would have to be very zen in that situation. Yeah, he seemed like the sort of pillar of calm in this in this crazy maelstrom of of family. Um, when you talk to all these kids, or as many of them as you did about their family, um, a family like that, you must have heard some good stories. Do you have any favorites? I mean, yeah, there there there's so many. A, a few things that struck me is just how much everyone says that that the biological and adopted kids were treated exactly the same. You know, they all slept in these kind of dorm type rooms. They, if, if a piece of clothes fit you, uh, it was yours. There was there was no kind of separation there. One of the kids, Melanie, was, was was talking to me about how at a certain point she got jealous. These sort of social workers kept coming to visit her siblings and take them out for ice cream and and kind of spend you know one on one time with them. She got incredibly jealous and demanded that a social worker of her own arrive. So. Sandra had to convince a friend to come over and kind of ask ask Melanie these questions. The other thing that really jumped out is just, I don't know, speaking with all of them is Sandra's, that she was tough, you know, she was kind of unsentimental about all this stuff. One new girl arrived who, who had had polio as a kid and she wasn't able to walk. And in Point Claire, they had a big pool in the backyard, which they spent all summer around. Uh, and the day she arrived, Sandra told one of the older kids, she said, throw her in the pool. Um, 
threw her in the pool, kind of spluttered around, sunk down, and then kind of eventually learned to swim. Um, and she said, I can't have her, I can't be worried about her, you know, drowning all summer. She has to learn to swim. And the kid eventually kind of a few years later becomes a Paralympic athlete, wins five gold medals. Um, each kid has all of these, you know, they each have an amazing individual life with, with ups and downs. Um, so kind of speaking to all of them was, was fascinating. It's just such a, a collection of amazing stories. And, you know, the, the last thing I guess I want to ask you is, um, in the current climate where, where so many of our conversations are, are about race and immigration has uh, been such a hot button issue, when you're reporting a story like this from the past in this climate, what do you think about? The thing that kept striking me is what a sort of, in some ways, old fashioned view all of this is. It's not, it's not contemporary. Like in, in the last few decades, there's been a lot written about international adoption, right? It's, it's complicated. Like, um, growing up with people who are a different race than you has, has all sorts of complications. You can describe people like Sandra who are, who are kind of parachuting into these countries, um, and taking children. There's, there's sort of a, a colonial aspect to some of it or a white savior aspect. Um, there's lots of kind of critical academic literature about all this stuff. Sandra sees that stuff, but she is, um, her response was much more personal and, and emotional, right? She, she saw an individual kid who she thought she could help, and, and she did. And speaking to the kids themselves, you kind of expect to hear some of that, that narrative from them. Um, but at least the, the ones that I spoke to, there's, within the Simpson family specifically, this is not, you know, I don't want to generalize across adoptions at all, but they, they feel very much like, like Simpsons over, over anything else, you know? And I think part of that is because of the, the sheer scale of the family. You know, they weren't like one... Vietnamese kid in a in a white family in, in in Toronto. They were part of this sprawling multicultural uh, clan that that had its own sort of gravity and identity. So I think I think that was one of the things that um, yeah that really struck me. Nicholas Hewn Brown of Toronto Life. That was the big story. If you would like more, including zero, just like this one, you can find them at thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us. Tell us to cover the news instead of these really interesting stories at thebigstoryfpn on Twitter or email us at thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. If you like this podcast, we want to hear about it in your favorite podcast app, especially if it lets you leave us a review. We read every single one. I send the good ones to the rest of the team because we all love a good review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.